Hey, my name is Scott Dalton. I am the director of Young Adult Ministries here. Uh, it is my job today to, to try to explain the text. And I'd like to start with, with this kind of, I guess, confession. I think it's good to always start with a confession. One of the things that I, I'm going to use the word hate uh, from the pulpit. And I think one of the words that I hate the most in probably the world is the word interesting. I despise this word, and actually, my my whole family has like grown in, in we're growing in hating this word. And you can watch these conversations happen around our dinner table, where someone will say, "That was so," and then there's just pause, and they know that they're thinking interesting, and everyone's going to judge them for it. And then they say, "Terrifying," you know, or or some sort of other adjective to 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 substitute the word interesting. And there's a great scene in this, this recent movie that came out called Captain Fantastic. And it's this kind of quirky little indie film. And it's about this guy, and he takes his kids out in the woods, and he's kind of homeschooling them, and he's kind of this man's man. He's kind of like, he's kind of like the, the Jeff Hatton of, you know, kind of like, but on, if he was on his own and educating children or something. He's like physically training them, you know, and they're all in, in unbelievable shape. And, uh, and there's a scene, and he makes them read these books. His kids read these books. They read, like, Brothers Karamazov and Middlemarch, and they read all these, you know, large books for, like, 10-year-olds. And this, this, he's having this conversation with, the, the father's having a conversation with his kid. And he says, you know, tell me about the book. Tell me about what you're reading. And she says, it's so, you know, it's so interesting. And this kid in the back of the bus goes, Dad, she used the word interesting. And he just lectures her on why it's a non-word and why you shouldn't use it. And, and the reason why I don't like it is because it, it actually is a, it's a hider word. It's a word that you say when you actually don't know what to say, and most of the time you don't mean it. You say, oh, that's so interesting. You know, I'm, I'm an electrical engineer. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, what does that mean? Like, is that, are you, are you fascinated? Are you, did you, like, put the fork in the electrical socket as a kid? Like, have you had a bad experience with electricity? Like, what does that mean? I think it's kind of like the word fine. You know, there's that great scene in the Italian job where they say, you know, oh, I'm fine. He's like, oh, you know what that fine means? It means freaked out, insecure, you know, neurotic and emotional. And, and I think that that, like, as a human uh, product, that is such a strange thing, right? We say these things, uh, and we put them out there, and there's something just going on behind that. And that's what I think that the word, that the word interesting does. And I think that the same principle applies for uh, human emotion. I think that there's a real sense in which there are some emotions that happen, that they're out here, right? And, and there's something that's happening under here where there's almost like a tether that you can pull to an anchor of what's projecting that out. And that's a ton of ethereal words. And what I mean by that is that sometimes our emotions are an indication of what is happening underneath. I think that uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman demonstrates this really well. Uh, Hoffman recently died, but played a masterful role in the film Capote. And he uh, is just unbelievable. It was kind of like that, that Heath Ledger moment with Joker, where there's just no sense that he's in there, right? You look at Ledger and you're like, there's, there's, there's no one, un this is the Joker. You know, and I think Hoffman's similar in Capote. He just, he's so masterful. And he was talking about playing this role, and it was a big one for him. And he was interviewed, and he said, they said, tell me about, you know, kind of playing Capote. And he says, well, uh, you do think that you're, and about acting. And he says, you do think that your career is going to be over all the time. 
I'm actually the one. You know, it's me. It's my body, my head, my mind, my voice. It's right here. And you know, there's something about people criticizing that or about failing in that realm that's hard. That's hard to take, and I do fear that, definitely. He goes on. Failing was huge. People knew who Capote was. He's an iconic figure. I just, the fear, the nightmare, the fear of just being embarrassingly bad in the role was very real. Humans do this thing, right, where we have these, these emotional words or, or these things or these feelings that something is, there's a storm underneath that, those kind of waters. Fear is, in a lot of ways, a, a map of emotions uh, that shows us what is mastering them. And I think that that is exactly what today's text is driving at. What is fear showing us? What is the map that's going to lead us back to what is mastering us? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. I'm going to read it. <laughs> so, uh, this comes from Mark 4, 35 through 41. This is God's word. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with a great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Y'all can have a seat. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, um, you are a mighty God. And we come before you expectantly, waiting to hear a word from you. Oh, Lord, we are uh, beings with a longing for the eternal. And here in this place, we earnestly desire to be met with the infinite. And so would you meet us here? Would you unfold the light that is your word? And would change on the spot happen? Would you use this word to make us look more like you? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so we have not been in Mark, and I think it's important that we kind of understand the textual terrain that we are on, on the ground with, so to speak. And we have, we, we've touched a little bit in Jesus I Never Knew, but I think to understand the, the gravity of what's happening here, we've got to understand what happened in the first couple chapters of Mark. Okay, so we are early in Jesus' ministry, according to Mark, and Jesus has already done a few things that are pretty cool. So he's cast out a demon so far. He has healed a leper, which Jeff preached on a little while ago. He is now eating with tax collectors. He has healed a withered hand. 
And at this point in the text, Jesus has been on this kind of rampage in a, in a nice way, a nice rampage of teaching. Like he's just been, he's been crazy about it in, in the best way. He has been laying out a couple of parables that are terribly confusing. And he's been on kind of this teaching binge by the Sea of Galilee. And that leads us, he tells us, you know, this parable of this mustard seed about the kingdom of God. So he's teaching. And then we get kind of this break in the story right here in 35. And what this tells us is that he had been teaching uh, for a while to these crowds. And now he's saying, let us go across to the other side. Let's leave the crowds and gather disciples and move across, go to a different place. So what does this tell us? I think that this is critical. I think that if we miss the reality of the, the way that the text moves, that this scene feels like another Jesus miracle kind of thing. And if we understand where it's going, it, it builds this dramatic, uh, this dramatic reality of who Jesus is. There's a, there's a great scene in, in Lord of the Rings where <laughs> I've been reading it recently, and it is awesome. It's blowing my mind. And... Uh, there's this scene early in, in the fellowship where uh, Bilbo has the ring and he, you know, Gandalf is kind of coaxing him and he's like, give me the ring, you know, and Bilbo's like, no, I want to have it one more time, you know, it's kind of my, my precious, and he's like, no, no one uses that language, we know what's going on there, and he says, uh, he gets, you know, Gandalf, like a good friend, gets angry at him, and he says, uh, Bilbo, do not push me farther or you will see Gandalf the Grey uncloaked. And I think that, not in an angry way at all, uh, but the principle applies. In a lot of ways, Jesus in his ministry is kind of doing this uncloaking thing where we're kind of seeing these bits and pieces. And of course, he's, you know, he's, he's God, right? So there's no sense in which he's revealing more of himself. But we're getting these cuts and we're seeing the uncloaked nature of God. And that is exactly what's happening with this particular act. And so the deal is, the disciples are still figuring out what does it mean that God is uncloaked? Who is this guy? They're still trying to figure it out because the confession of, you know, who do you say that I am? Oh, you're the Christ, comes in chapter 8 of Mark. So they're still trying to figure out uh, who Jesus is. All right, so let's look at this text. So on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And there were other boats with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, bookmark, we're not going that far. We're not going that far. Uh, here's the deal. They're on, they're on the Sea of Galilee. And what, I think Jeff has hit this a ton if you've been around in the past couple weeks. But the... The sea is this biblical image, right, of just the chaos, the great chaotic deep, the uh, just uncontrollable realities. It's almost like, it's weird. It's almost like in the Bible, the sea is this arm that's coming out to grab humanity. It's kind of this decreative, destructive force that uh, is uncontrollable and terrifying to ancient Near Eastern people. It's it's like it has a life of its own to come out and grab, right? And what we know, we've already read the text, and what we know about this question that they're about to ask 
is that the disciples are fearful. But the deal with this is that you don't see that until the question comes out, right? They're, they're doing some things, and then they ask this question, right? Boom, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And that present reality of that fear, don't you care, shows us that there's been a build in some way. They're not just coming to him you know, in this moment of fear uh, as, it's, as it's happening. There's clearly been a, a sense in which there has been a growing fear, right? There's a storm on the waters. And what I want, to, want us to see is that this fear, if we pull this thread, it's going to lead us to uh, control. Verse 38, picking up the bookmark. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? This right here is fear. And this is a fear that says, I need control. And why, why is that? Because they're crying out in some sort of sense of desperation. And the deal with, with desperation is that it's an acknowledgement that I can't control this the way that either I thought I could or I simply am realizing now for the first time that I was never in control. And at this point... <laughs> You know, teacher, don't you care? We're dying. We are perishing. Uh, it's like that scene in, in Sandlot, like Ham Porter, right? Uh, and it's super hot outside. And Benny, we're dying out here. Don't you care? Give me some water kind of thing. That's what's happening here. Don't you care that we're, per- we're dying out here, Jesus? Don't you care? And I think this is the same thing with that fear thing, right? Is that there's something happening behind this that says maybe... I was never in control in the first place, and this is terrifying. The reason that we know that is because there's no scrambling to regain control here. They're at the point where there's, there's no sense in which they can do anything. Fear can lead us to this kind of desperate feeling, right? Wondering if God even cares. <laughs> God what will happen if I lose my job? Lord, I feel stuck in this place, in this town, with my job. Lord, will I get into this college, the right college? You know? Lord, will my kids call this week? Fear, in a lot of senses, feels like a desperation. I think that this is illustrated well. Uh, if you've seen the movie Silence, uh, the Scorsese film that came out, I think just as a side note, it's so bizarre. Uh, Hacksaw Ridge also came out at the same time, and they're both these kind of, they have these kind of Christian uh, undertones and kind of sub theme, maybe overt, yeah, it's overt. And Hacksaw Ridge grossed like $150 million. It's so hopeful and wonderful and really violent. Uh, and, and Silence, Silence is this kind of like, uh, heady intellectual kind of film, and it, it grossed like seven million bucks, comparatively. And and the deal is that that silence asks these questions that are just really difficult, <laughs> like what happens when I pray and no one answers, or it feels like no one answers. And 
And there's this moment where one of, one of the guys, who's the missionaries who's there, Father Rodriguez says, oh, it's so good. He says, I pray, but I am lost. Am I just praying to silence? And the whole movie goes on to answer the question, kind of uh, what God does when it seems like it's silence. But I think that the best picture, literal picture, best literal picture of this, this whole kind of scene that's going on and what fear feels like is Rembrandt. Rembrandt the painter, he did it. I looked, I scoured the internet, okay? And no one has depicted this scene well at all. I mean, I'm talking about terrible art. Really, really bad art. Uh, there's uh, uh, Bruegel painted it. He did Hunters in the Snow. His is awful. It's not good. It's like, uh, uh, it's like some people in a boat just kind of chilling, and they, they're just kind of hanging out, and it's, not, it's terrible. But Rembrandt does it well. 1633, Rembrandt, Rembrandt paints this thing. And uh, what's so cool about it, I wish I had, I should have done a thing. Um, but but uh, here's the scene, is that all of the disciples are in the boat, and it's, it's bow up, right? That's a nautical term for the front of the boat. Bow up, and they are, there's these men that are on the, on the front of the boat. I'm going to do it like this. This is going to be it. So here, there are these men, and they're like pulling ropes, and they're being like so heroic, and they're, they're just like raging against the sea as it rages against them. And there's this kind of beam of light that sort of comes down, and it's trying to show the kind of impending hope that's going to happen when Jesus kind of gets up and calms this thing. And it moves kind of into darkness, and there's, uh, the, the disciples are kind of doing these things. There's some guys that are kind of pulling stuff on the ground, and some people are up. And then there's one guy that's grabbing Jesus by the shoulder as if to say, you know, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing kind of thing? But the beauty of, what art critics would say is the beauty of this painting is that there is, there's a guy who's standing in the middle of the boat, and he's kind of doing like one of these, and he's kind of, hello, and he's grabbing his hat, and he's looking out, and no matter, it's one of those paintings where no matter where you stand, his eyes are always looking at you, as if to say, what do you think is going on? What do you think is happening in this world? That's what our critics would say is good. I don't think that that's the beauty of the painting. I think, so he's doing, right, doing this thing. There's a guy next to him, and at first it took me a while to figure out, and then I had to do the uh, command plus and then kind of zoom in. And uh, this guy is over the front of the side of the boat, uh, the kind of the gunnel on the boat, and he's puking. He's puking over the side of the boat. And I, I, I look at this, this painting, it was like, that is me. Like, I'm the puke guy. Because I'm, like, not very strong, so, like, I'm not on the bow, right? And the guy who's kind of this majestic, kind of like Leo DiCaprio kind of moment, and... But then there's the guy who's puking over the gunnel. And I think that that is what fear feels like. Is in the midst of a storm, like there's, you know, there's kind of the, we love heroic stories. But I think that probably 99% of the time, we feel like fear feels crippling. And it feels like I'm puking over the side of the boat. (laughs) And don't you care? (laughs) You know, God, don't you care? I'm throwing up here. This is disgusting kind of deal. And it's not glamorous. Thanks, Rembrandt. Gosh, so good. Uh, and so here we are, maybe, maybe disciples puking over the boat, maybe not. And then they ask him this question, and he just kind of doesn't respond. And he sort of gets up, and then just, poof, peace, be still. 
And this is part of the beauty of, of how Jesus works uh, and how God works, is that there is no questioning by the sea. There is no maybe. There is no uh, kind of, uh, well, we don't feel like it kind of thing. It just happens. Boom. On command, power. Right? Jesus, peace be still, and the sea is still. There's a great calm. And this is where, if, if you are not a Christian, where there is a, there's a sense in which you've got to gra- grapple with this reality. That there are a lot of religions that say, uh, oh, you know, our, our kind of sacred texts are, I won't, oh, I'm not going to patronize them in kind of that voice, but that say our religious texts, you know, we read them allegorically. And uh, it's kind of good advice or uh, kind of sage wisdom to live your life. And this is where... Uh, there's no bones about it. Christianity claims that God can, has the power over nature, period. We read this as a factual reality, that God can actually do this. So if you're not a Christian, uh, that's, that's a wrestling point that, where you're just going to have to make a decision, yes or no. Is this Jesus who he says he is? Is this Bible reliable? But then immediately when he calms the waves. Jesus turns to them, right? And he asks this kind of diagnostic question. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The, the kind of translation for why are you so afraid, I think is better rendered, why are you being so cowardly? Because it's not so much that they're afraid, right? Any person would be afraid in the storm. It's not like, oh, you know, I'm, I, hear me now. I'm not saying fear is bad, right? I'm just saying fear tells us something. And what's happening here is that uh, the, the text kind of literally reads, why are you so, being so cowardly? And it's because their fear has mastered them and taken them to a place where they feel out of control. <laughs> and it's overwhelming, puke outside of the boat <laughs> kind of fear. And so Jesus asked this question, and I say that it's diagnostic because he knows the answer. That's how Jesus works, right? He says these questions in this oblique way that just will rip you open. And he says, why are you so afraid? And the reason that he can ask this question is because he was asleep in the boat. I think sometimes we love to overplay, not overplay, I mean, how can you overplay uh, God's divinity? Maybe it's just that we underplay his humanity. And in a real sense, it's 100% God, 100% man reality, that Jesus, the perfect human, is asleep in the midst of the storm. I think that right there shows us what it means to be human, (laughs) what it means to be completely human, would be to look at that storm and say, I'll take a nap. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> that would be so nice. But what is going on with this question? Right? Have you still no faith? And that's why this sermon is not a sermon about Jesus calming the storms of your heart. Because he does, I mean, God does do that. For sure, and I think that that's clear. We could have that conversation, you know, anywhere in you know, Scripture. But here, it seems to be a unique approach, a slice into the reality that Jesus uh, is a deliverer, 
that we don't really expect, as opposed to just the guy who calms the storms in your heart, which he does, of course. What I want to, to read here is the disciples' response to Jesus' diagnostic question. Verse 41, And they were filled with a great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? I hate this translation. I hate it so much. And here's why. <laughs> is, and the word interesting. Is filled with a great fear is, I think, I think the literal is way better here, and, and that's, that's rare for me, but I think that this is kind of a, a, there's something that's happening here that you miss if you can't see it in the original. Better trans, not better translated, but more literally translated, is uh, they feared a great fear. And that should sound weird to us. No one says, I, fe- I feared a great fear the other day. Uh, uh, you know, I, that's just a weird, that's a bizarre thing. And... That language should sound weird to Western people. They feared a great fear. You know, what does that mean? And that should sound weird to us because Western people don't speak like that. In fact, there is a group that speaks like that, but they're Semitic. It's a Hebraism. It's a Hebrew way of speaking. I feared a great fear. Uh, when, when Jewish people wrote in the ancient Near East, they said things like, and we sacrificed sacrifices, or we vowed vows, or we feared great fears. And what's happening here is that Mark is just dropping this thing on us to say, hey, Old Testament echo. Old Testament echo, right here. Fearing a great fear should... should alert us immediately that this isn't how they speak. This is something from the past. And where is this language used? (laughs) Jonah. Jonah. Same story, right? Jonah on this sea. He's going across the sea, and the storm picks up, right? And he's asleep in the boat. And those that are on their way to Tarshish come and and wake him up and say, you know, Jonah. Actually, I'll just read it. Here it is. He says, uh, so then they said, this is Jonah uh, 1.11, for those that are following along. They said to him, "What what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Sounds really familiar. Therefore, they called out, really familiar, to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish. Right there. (laughs) For this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it is pleased to you. And this is the weirdest picture ever. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. <laughs> you know? And, and watch this. And the sea ceased from its raging. <laughs> 
Then, this is it. Then the men, and they, they rendered it again. Then they feared exceedingly, which is not right. Then they feared a great fear, and they sacrificed sacrifices to the Lord, and they vowed vows. So back to Mark, right? Why are you so afraid? Are you still no faith? And they feared a great fear. And they said to each other, who then is this? Why are they terrified? Because they know this story. These are people who are steeped in the scriptures. And they know that there is only one person who calms the wind and the waves. It's in the Psalms. It happens in Jonah. And that only means one thing. God is in the boat. And so they feared a great fear because the reality is, right, what I said earlier about Jesus coming uncloaked, they know there's only one person that does this. God does this. Humans don't calm the sea and the wind. That's not a thing. This is an act of God. And so they're terrified because God has to be in the boat. So this question is not a question of stupidity. It's a question of wrestling. Who is this guy? (laughs) Who is this? Jesus is a deliverer that they did not expect. There's there's a a woman named Dorothy Sayers who used, she's just like brilliant. And she was one of the first female to graduate from Oxford. And she wrote uh, these kind of crime uh, novels, kind of Sherlock Holmes, but uh, the, the lead character, his name is Peter Whimsey. And uh, Peter Whimsey is, he's not like Holmes, he's much more kind of debonair and not socially weird. And uh, I kind of like for a long time kind of wanted to be Holmes, and then I realized that he, uh, is, he has no friends. And so I, I'm going to scratch that, I'm still looking. But uh, Peter Whimsey is written, in, he's, he's the main character of Dorothy Sayers' kind of crime uh, mystery novels. And there's this kind of th- bizarre thing that happens with, with her work. Uh, those who, are, who are kind of read her stuff and they're kind of uh, well-versed in her corpus would, would say that there's this moment in the series where uh, Peter Whimsey kind of meets this, this woman. And he's kind of, because he's kind of this like kind of debonair bachelor, and he meets this woman and... Uh, they fall in love, and they, they wind up getting married. And this woman is strange, and I say that because she, she's the first female graduate from Oxford. And she is this kind of brilliant, you know, kind of wordsmith, and she is weirdly similar to Dorothy Sayers. And those who are familiar with her work would say, yeah, she wrote herself into the story. That she saw that Peter Whimsey was alone, that he was this kind of bachelor guy. And she loved him so much that she wrote herself in and she gave him a partner. And that's kind of, what's funny about that is that we all should be thinking, that, ew, that's weird. Like, that's so weird. Like, she wrote this fictional character and then she kind of fell in love with him. But I think that probably most of us are thinking, God's, Romantic is all get out. I mean, that's, that's awesome. 
And, and that's the deal with what's going on in the story is, uh, you know, we're, we're asking questions like, what is fear? And, and does God even care? And, and if he does, what does that mean for me? And, and here's the deal. God writes himself into the story. And this right here is a moment where the people uh, who, who have heard of this Old Testament God are now seeing his realities and beholding him in a way that is so palpable and so real that it induces fear in an awestruck kind of way. In the story of Jonah, the, the wind and the waves, to be calmed, they require a sacrifice. That's the whole deal. Is uh, Jonah says, pick me up, throw me into the sea, which means kill me, basically. Because God's not going to be satisfied until someone dies here. Jonah is thrown overboard, but here's the deal with Jonah. Like I, that's why I did this motion, because they pick him up and throw him in. He acknowledges in the beginning, you're going to need to throw me overboard kind of deal. But it doesn't say, Jonah stood on the gunnel, puking, Rembrandt, and jumped in. No. Jonah was hurled into the sea by the other men. Jesus is also asleep on the boat, but Jesus is willing. He is the willing Savior. He alone is the one that calms the storm. So one, one detail that I left out intentionally uh, when I was describing the, uh, the sea is that the sea is this kind of demonic force in a lot of ways in Old Testament literature, where it almost has this kind of demonic power. Like I said, it was kind of like an arm. I think the Leviathan is kind of a the sea monster thing. It's kind of right. It feels like it's this, this kind of other realm in a lot of ways. And so Jesus subdues this seemingly demonic force by his very word. He is the one who has power over it, over the sea, by his word. And ultimately, he's going to be the one that's going to willingly jump in it. That is how much God cares. God, do you even care? It's like he's answering to them, this is how much I care. I wrote myself in to take the wrath of the uncalmable sea, willingly able to subdue it, but I took it anyway. So now, in light of that, when we see our fear, and don't hear me now, I'm not saying that fear is in, intrinsically this just, you know, we're here at Redeemer, we don't fear anything. No, uh, here in the Christian life, we have no fears. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is fear is this thing that's out here, and if we, can, if we have the opportunity, we can pull this tether to a reality in our hearts that says, this is what's anchoring me down, and it's making me puke over the side of the boat. We're free to pull that string and to watch who answers it. We can ask, like the disciples, who then is this that knows this pain, that has experienced this hurt, 
And we can ask it now with confidence to a God who can calm the wind and the waves and does it with his own blood sacrifice. A God who was slain by the sea so that we might not have to be. Our deliverance uh, from the sea may, may not always feel immediate, but rest assured it is final and it is finished. So who then is this? God in the boat. God in the flesh. Amen.